0: Welcome to the Freedom Fridays Project podcast. I'm Pete Clark, your host, The Whispers Guy. It appears that work expands to the time that we give it. And I started to explore how I was investing my time and effort, particularly on Fridays. It's evolved to an explanation, and experiment with time, energy, attention and identity. And a mindset shift from I have to, to I choose to. So if you're interested in exploring some changes to the way that you invest your time and your energy, if you'd like some tips on the way as you make some changes perhaps to your identity, if you would like the freedom of I choose to away from I have to, then this is the podcast for you. So welcome to the Freedom Fridays Project podcast.
1: So welcome to this week's podcast episode. Freedom Fridays, where we're speaking to ordinary people doing extraordinary things. I've got a very special guest on this week, someone that I've reconnected with because of the pandemic, and we've been in touch pretty regularly, uh, probably over the last year, and he's got some fascinating interests and insights and a fascinating background that we might or might not get into. But uh, please welcome to this week's podcast, Mr. Michael Tipper.
2: Pete, thank you so much for inviting me. It's a real pleasure to be here.
1: You're welcome, sir. Um, Mike, as I usually do, I start the podcast and discussion with the same question. So Freedom Friday is about this metaphor of adding more life to your years, moving from something that you feel you have to do to something that you might choose to do. And, you know, some ordinary people are doing some extraordinary things and making big changes in their life. Can you just share with the listeners what the big change is that you're going to talk about?
2: It's a really interesting question. When, when you first um, suggested uh, that we talk about this, I had to really sit down and think because I, um, in in doing the work I'm doing, as I'm shifting from what I was doing to what, I was, to what I'm doing now, I hadn't realized I was making a big change. Mm-hmm. And so if I look back on my life, I've made some significant changes uh, of doing things that I, have to do to doing things i choose to so i spent 16 years in the royal navy and uh, there came a point when i felt i was having to stay there and actually i needed to choose to do something different i made a completely different choice and <coughs> if i reflect back on that choice the characteristics of making that choice have been there for all the other choices i've made so the first thing that struck me at the time as I reflect back on that is that I was unhappy. Maybe unhappy is a bit of a strong word. Uh, I was unsettled. It didn't fit. And I think you get this in a sense that there is a change that's necessary because there is a disquiet, there's a discomfort, there's something not quite right. You can't quite put your finger on it. And It's often because, as I reflect on my own life anyway, uh, it's often because I wasn't really being true to myself. And so the naval thing is I I spent 16 years in the Navy. I did quite well. Um, I, I uh, I, I did the job well. I really enjoyed it. But what I discovered is that who I was and who I needed to be was different. So, and... Early on in my career, it was easy to it was easy to bridge that gap because I didn't realize it was there. And I was just accommodating and and meeting the needs, having to conform, if you like, to the military standards, the naval standards. Mm -hmm. And I was able to do that. And then as I got more senior, I the, the gulf between who I was and who I needed to be to be effective was getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And I was intelligent enough to spot what was necessary. I was committed enough to make the efforts to bridge that gap. But what I didn't realise, it was the cost of who I really was. And because I wasn't really being authentic and because I wasn't really being true, I started to get to the point where, had I stayed in the Navy, I probably would have started to my career wouldn't have gone as well as it could have done because I wasn't being who I was. And the strain on me for doing that was absolutely huge. And I only realized that once I'd left the service. And so I was a, I was a, a weapons engineer, a systems engineer. I was a chartered engineer. I was running the team that looked after the combat system on a nuclear-powered warship. A Couple of years later, I'm standing in front of primary school kids, teaching them how to learn. and so what a contrast I mean I didn't know I didn't it was a huge contrast now I didn't know um that I would end up there but it was but it felt so right being in the right place Mm. and I was listening to a, a podcast this morning and it was by Tom Bilyeu who does the impact theory and he was quoting Einstein who I said something along the lines of of if you judge a fish by its ability to climb a tree then the fish will always think it's stupid. Mm-hmm. And I think what I found is that I'd found myself in a career that seemed to be the right choice at the time because I was technical, I had a father who was in the Navy. Um, it opened up the opportunity for me to go to university, which I wouldn't otherwise have had. Um, they seemed to be the right choices, but later on, it wasn't me. And when I, when I realigned myself to something that, that aligned with who I really was, I started to flourish, I started to thrive. And I think it was around that time that we actually met. Right. Um,
1: right. Like there's so many strands to that. And I would love to hear the thing you're doing now and how the characteristics of choice have shown up again, but I want to pick up on a couple of things. The, these questions that you're asking or that you asked of yourself, you know, who am I, who's the me, you know, who I needed to be. They're easy questions, but potentially really difficult answers. Mm. Uh, what was the, provocation what was the prompt that even caused you to look into those questions
2: well i think i always knew that there was something wrong um i was very self-reflective and i always wondered trying to work out what it was but i I was i I don't know if stubborn or or stupid or lazy is the the way you define me but i would stay in the mess longer than was necessary so i wasn't someone who oh this is wrong this is wrong i got to deal with it i better deal with it now uh, it's a case of, oh, this is uh, – and it's like the um, – there's an old saying is that um, why – there's a dog sitting on a nail. Why doesn't he get off? Because he's moaning. Well, it doesn't hurt enough. Uh, and I think it didn't hurt enough for me. Or I was scared. I'm not sure what the, what the, what the reason was. But I was staying in a situation that I was – it wasn't right for me. But because I didn't know any better, it was almost like I was familiar with the discomfort. Therefore, I'd rather – endure that than go into the unfamiliarity of the unknown um and so that's what happened and what the catalyst for me was my mum passing away suddenly okay and it was it was a life shock and i suddenly realized uh, it, i mean it happened within seven weeks of her going into hospital with a really bad headache seven weeks later she passed away because of a brain tumor that no one knew she had so it was this massive life shock and it was a case of "Whew, that hurt uh right there are more important things in life let me reassess and so i i left i i put my notice in and then left a year later
1: yeah so um
2: you
1: you do hear that you do hear that a lot certainly in the world that you and i exist in people having life events causing them to pivot you know almost 360 um and you know i i've shared examples of when that's happened to me What counsel do you have for someone that's not in that space? That, you know, obviously we're not advising, wait for the life event to happen before you do something. It often happens as a consequence that we do something when it happens. Do you have any counsel for people who aren't waiting till their mum is on their deathbed, aren't waiting for the heart attack before they make the change? Is there anything they can do to bring it closer so they can make the change they can think they want?
2: Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, it's very easy for us to adapt to our environments, even ones that are unhappy. So you hear people who are in relationships that are abusive, for example, and you don't know why, why don't you just leave them? And it's because they've settled and become comfortable with that discomfort. It's the familiarity. They become addicted to those emotions. Mm-hmm. So that's what—that's the danger that we've got. And it's not—it's like the, the, the dog lying on the nail. It's not hurting enough to move. So... Um, and that's why a lot of people stay where they are. So if someone really wants to make a change mm. and, they, and they sort of know that actually it, they, they should make a change, so it's, it's, it's from a should to a must, it's that switch. Mm-hmm. Most people know there are things they should do. And it's when it becomes a must that they, take the diff- that they take that step. So if intellectually listening to our conversation now, you can probably say, well, yeah, I know if I'm in a place that's okay, and I could be in a place that is good, then maybe I should move to the good. If, if you want to make that a must, there's, um, I mean, we've both done work with Tony Robbins, and Tony Robbins has a great thing called the Dickens pattern. And what he does, he bases it on the, um, um, on the Christmas Carol story about how Scrooge is visited by the three ghosts. And one of the ghosts that brings, they go on a journey where they see the worst that could possible ha- happen in their life. And this is what happens if you don't change. And and he gets you to create the, okay, well, if this doesn't happen and and you extrapolate from there, and then you really um, engage the emotions and become and feel what it would be like if you just carried on and it got really, really bad. And what that does, that creates a sense of, oh, don't want to go there. Um, because the brain likes to avoid pain and then the other side of that is okay well there is the okay well let's look go into the future and what could happen if you made the shift and everything went according to plan how would you feel what would you experience and those two polarities one pushing you away from things you don't want and one pulling you away from things you do want is a really powerful exercise to do mm. and if you, if you get someone to facilitate it for you and they really push you, um, it can be very, very powerful. So, that's yeah. a, there's, so there's a strategy, there's a tip um, uh, to do it. The other thing is, 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 is I can guilt you into it. <laughs> <laughs> right. Okay, all right, okay, so you're, in, you're okay now. Really? Is that, is that as much as you're able to do? Are you going to mm-hmm. stay here? OK, OK, take a rest from the last climb that you've got to where you are. But are you going to plateau? Because you can do more. Yeah. You know you can do more. Yeah. Why not do more for your kids? Why not do more for your family? Why not do more for your community? Why not do more for your church? Why don't, why don't you just do more for the world? Stop being so bloody selfish. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I mean, that, 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 there are so, all sorts of ways. I think making a change in hindsight was the best thing that you could do. The trouble yeah. is before you get to that point, you're faced with so many things that seem to either indicate it's too difficult, you can't do it, or so many things that are holding you back, saying, no, you shouldn't.
1: One of the things you said earlier, Mike, was this discrepancy between who you were and who you needed to be. That sounds a little bit like there was a competing set of voices, a competing set of things going on. How did you come to the conclusion about who you needed to be, where did that come from?
2: Well, I think this is where um, societal norms and expectations. So if, for example, the society that you live in has a certain adherence to certain things that you do on certain days, or has a, 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 a view on certain things you should wear or certain things you should say or not say, then there is an expectation within that that you conform to those standards. So if you're a free spirit or uh, so if you grow up in that environment, the chances are you're going to Uh, become accustomed to that because you know no different and it becomes part of that and then you support that. Now I'm not making any judgments either right or wrong here which why I'm not sort of pulling up any specific examples but if you have a look at the different cultures around the world the different religions around the world the different uh, and and cultures not only um, uh, national based cultures but I'm also cultures in this group of people in this organization here will be different from that group of people in that organization there. There is an expectation of, of how things are and in the military, there are certain things that were expected um, in terms of uh, your standard, your bearing, uh, the clothes you wore. So as a naval officer, so I joined, I joined the ranks and then within three and a half years, I was commissioned and then effectively joined the Navy again and started from scratch. And I discovered a whole new world. I grew up on a council estate. Uh, uh, in a family that, um, a single parent family for a long time, my mother was on income support and I used to have have secondhand clothes to go to the grammar school. And so that's the environment I grew up. All of a sudden, I found myself in a situation where some of the people I was with, their parents owned half of counties um, and they spoke with very posh accents and uh, they were dropped off by the person who worked for their parents Uh, and uh, their, their, their experience of the world where they used to holiday. I didn't even holiday as a kid. Um, We we possibly went to Barmouth for a weekend once. Um, And so all of a sudden, different expectations. And within that... Um, So, a naval officer uh, back then, I I mean, it's been a while since I've been in there, there were certain things that you wore in certain times. Not just uniform, I'm talking about civilian clothes. They had names for the different types of clothes that you would wear, whether you uh, wore a suit or uh, whether you wore a jacket and tie, whether you wore a sports blazer. Um, And God forbid, if you tried to wear white socks with your shoes. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> uh, and so you, there, there are these norms and expectations. Now, on the military side, you wear certain uniforms at certain times for certain reasons. You do certain drills at certain times for certain reasons. When you're taking charge of things, you say certain things in certain ways. So there's that expectation. But also there's certain expectations about behaviors. Mm. Um, and so because I came from a different environment, I was found myself constantly recalibrating, readjusting so that I would fit in. Um, and I think uh, it was a case of because I felt so alien. Um, mm. As I said, I mean, I had to have patches on the elbows of my blazer at school, um, I had to wear secondhand shoes and stuff. And um, uh, and then there are these people who, who were driving fast sports cars that were new. They weren't sort of like handed down from the granddad, which my Fiat Strada was rusting yeah. like a bucket next to the. Porsches and stuff that were driven
1: and so somebody making a change and I'm going to come to ask you what you're doing now the, the big change that you do now but I'm, I want to explore this a bit if you would, wouldn't mind if somebody knows they want to make a change and they've got some insight about what could be who or who they need to be depending on where they're at and yet there's a strong pool to stay fitted in there's a strong pull of the tribe how, how do you counter that
2: Yeah, it's a real difficult one. Um, It's a brave step to stand out and be who you are.
0: Mm.
2: So um, although I said in the service I conformed, um, I conformed to what was expected to me professionally. But personally, I very much stayed who I was. So, for example, um, I was teetotal and I was vegetarian. And at the time, I looked like Joe (laughs) Ninety. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> His glasses on. Um, and so I, I remember I joined the, 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 the toughest, hardest drinking submarine in the northern flotilla as a teetotal, as a vegetarian, looking like Joe 90 full of these, uh, it was a Scottish submarine. Uh, so so I say a Scottish submarine, we had two uh, submarine bases, one based down in Plymouth, one based up in Scotland. Those uh, uh, very heavy Scottish contingent in the service and they, there were submarines they would want to uh, be serving on the submarine. So the, 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 the submarines in the North tended to be uh, a lot of people from the North and sort of Scottish. I was from the South. And so there was those sort of differences. So when you join a submarine for the first time, now I was a lieutenant when I joined my first submarine, and you're treated like a piece of dirt because you're not a qualified submarine. You have to go through the whole process. So already you're a disadvantage when you join a submarine, regardless of your background, regardless whether you're Scottish, or not regardless of your rank, when you're getting your dolphins, because that's what you have to earn. And so you're already at the bottom of the pile. Add on to that, that I look like Joe 90, that I was teetotal, and I was a vegetarian, created a, um, created a degree of hostility, should we say, <laughs> Yeah. Um, from those who were ignorant of who I was as a person.
1: Hmm. And, so, and what so, fed, so, so what fed your bravery? Because it'd be you know, brave to take the step, but even braver to remain in that step. I, I, I like really Jonah don't into know the,
2: the answer to that question. I think there's a bit of a rebel in me, Uh, and I I can think back to um, a a story from my childhood. So I was 13, 14, and I had a girlfriend who went round to her house, and she had a a, a brother who was about three or four years older. Now, this was 1977. This was when punk was at its, I mean, the sex pistols and everything, and you had people wandering around in, in bondage trousers and spiky Mohicans and all that sort of stuff, and sort of um, looking like Sid Vicious and sort of talking like that and just being aggressive. And I was into that sort of music. And I can remember going around to her house and her brother was there with their friends and they were all dressing. And I was, I, I was like, meek and mild looking because my mum wouldn't let me dress in bondage trousers and I couldn't have safety pins. So I just had my jeans and T-shirt on. And they were getting a bit aggressive and they were saying, oh, what music do you like? And I remember saying to them, Beethoven. And I don't know why. <laughs> I just had to be different. And I think, that, I think it's just a quirk of personality that I, I just take a slightly altered view, just a little bit different. And I think that's what it was. And uh, I, I mean, just, I, I struggled. I mean, I, I did struggle. And I think what happened is an early part of my naval career, um, I was uh, racially abused for two years. Okay, to give you some background, I mean, if you, uh, if you look at me, I, I look like white, Caucasian, full-on yeah. British, but I'm quarter Kashmiri. My mother's father was from Pakistan. Mm-hmm. And I have a line in my family that are um, are, uh, are Kashmiri. They're, 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 you, you, they're, they're from the, um, yeah, they're full-on Kashmiri. I've got cousins. Uh, uh, and I discovered I had an uncle Abdullah. Now I was 16 years old at the time. I met him for the first time because my mother reconnected with that family, that part of the family mm-hmm. at that time. And uh, I thought, hey, I've got an uncle Abdullah. I met him, it was really cool. I thought, fantastic! I've got this. Uh, I've got this eclectic family. I didn't know I had. It's a richer experience of my life. I went back uh, from leave. I said, "Hey guys, I've got an uncle Abdullah." Oh my god! I shouldn't have said that. Right. Wow. I had. I was called the N word, the P word, and uh, for two years, and it was quite. Wow. Um, Quite a difficult time. And the only way I survived was by developing a. Uh, I couldn't fight it because I looked like Joe 90. <laughs> I didn't drink, <laughs> I was vegetarian. Well, no, actually, no, I wasn't back then, but I, I, I was uh, at that time. It's when I first joined. And so I had to survive. My survival instinct was for using humor, uh, self deprecating humor was how I survived. So mm. I built up this resistance and resilience and recognized I was in a hostile environment. I recognise that some people wouldn't um, uh, wouldn't appreciate who I was until they knew me, because as a person I'm okay. I, I I mix well with people. On the surface, if you just look at these attributes and you're coming from this environment where you're in the Navy and you're tough and drinking, you're out chasing women, you have got tattoos and stuff. If you look at me, you think. Nah, I'll bully him, or I'll, or not my type. But when you get to know me, you realise, okay, watch. Well, because, because a classic conversation with me later on in my life is that when I wasn't, when I was out with the lads, I still went out with them, even though I didn't drink. End of the conversation would go like this: Hey, Mike, Mike, you, you know what? I, I, you know what? You're all right. I didn't like you at first because you do not drink and all that other stuff, but you know what, mate? You're all right. I thought like, you're all right. <laughs> I said, well, thank you. I appreciate your endorsement. It's, I'm pleased about that.
1: Yeah.
2: And so that was, that was typical. So, so I don't know where the resilience comes from, other than maybe my personality, maybe recognise I need to survive, um, seeing the lighter side and, and, and not... Um, I mean, I was, I was a people pleaser, uh, which is problems from the past. And, and, mm. and, and so I wanted to please, I wanted to do it, but I didn't do it at the expense of who I was. I was true to who I was. And just accepted the excuse my French the shit that came back because of who I was, right. recognizing that's probably out of ignorance. Once people got to know me, it was fine. So coming back to my submarine story, when I joined that hard, I had to qualify as a submariner. It typically took six months to get your dolphins right. uh, going through. You had to go through every compartment, trace every system, know what every valve did, and you'd taken on, on a walk round. Uh, back aft by the marine engine officer, forward by the first lieutenant. Say, what's that? What happened if this happened? What's that valve for? What's this? And it takes six to eight hours to do each one of those walk rounds. Took me eight weeks because the only way I could I could justify my presence and my existence was by being bloody good at what I did. Right. And even though I didn't feel I had to, or even though I, I shouldn't have, I should have just gone and being part of that but my compensation was my professionalism and the acceptance actually okay it might be look like Joe ointy teatail vegetarian but actually he's good at his job mm. and that was my compensation
1: interesting so catapulting to today well this time we're in now um with the change that you've made maybe take a second to describe that but how have the characteristics of choice that you mentioned right at the start shown up in this change
2: well, I think it's all about sometimes you don't necessarily have a choice. You have to.
1: And uh-huh. I think this is
2: – with this is and, and it's, it's almost like a paradox from what you're saying. So yeah. you're going from have to to making a choice. I'm saying I had no choice. I have to, so I have to move on. So it sort of switches it round uh, yeah. a, a little bit. So um, for me, the um, – I had I I'd shifted so career-wise, having left the navy, I got into helping kids. Spent ten years doing that, built a company that did that, then uh, moved into going uh, uh, doing more work uh, corporately. Started doing some of that. Then the 2008-2009 uh, crisis hit, and then that was a forcing a change um, because when when training and everything sort of dropped off, my business just sort of like crashed out, the, crashed through the floor. So I had to go and find an alternative, and I was forced to get into doing contract work in large companies and i found myself developing leadership programs um, and i found myself in an environment where i was back in training and i relished it because it was project management it was putting things together it was working with people and because i was forced to i opened up a new career path for me and so the force forced into doing that meant uh, i was finding myself doing something i mean when you and i met i was someone who taught my mapping and memory yeah. um now now i'm i i can say hand on heart with the experience I've got I can specialize in leadership development um, particularly in highly regulated environments because I was forced to do it so so there was that and then I did that for five or six years and then again I I seem to like to go and uh, do my own work independent uh, separate from the organization so I thought well let me go and start doing some of this independently started doing that working with some of the colleagues I'd, I'd met during my time uh, doing the leadership stuff and then um, uh, and that was going quite well and then we had this thing called a pandemic. <laughs> And so once again, um, it suddenly wiped away what I was doing and I found myself, right, okay, let me try and do what I was doing before, but let me try and do it virtually. And I shifted to creating a a, a studio and uh, I've I've broadcast all over the world. I've broadcast Australia, New Zealand, Canada, Europe, America, um, India, Pakistan, the Middle East from Cheltenham. Uh, And I did that, but it was the same sort of material. And again, I knew I, I'd, I'd realized I wanted to sh- work, w- move away from where I was going what the work I was doing, because what I found in corporate space with the leadership stuff, they need the stuff that I was helping promulgate through the business, but they didn't want it.
1: <laughs> yes. Come across that I mean, this many is- times, Mike.
2: This is the problem. I mean, the management of the structure is right. We can see these people need this into development. You go in there. Hi, I'm going to help you. Oh, are you now? Well, we don't want your help. We will sit here and we'll play the game that we have to. And we'll come and turn up for the lessons. And we'll maybe write in our books every so often. But we ain't going to use it because yeah. we're happy where we are. I mean, and, and that effectively is corporate training. And I, I could see that. And it was so frustrating. And then every so often you get someone who would run with it. And it was like, Oh, I could, and you'd spend time with them and you support them and you could see this is what's possible and I realized that it was it was soul destroying knowing that you had all this stuff that could help the business it could help the people could turn around all sorts of things but they just weren't doing it because they were staying where they were because they were comfortable because it didn't no. hurt as much particularly mm-hmm. in the industries I was working in where they were paid very very well and they were very well protected and it was almost like a game for them so I I realized so that's why i moved away and um again i i started sort of doing what i was doing but i knew it wasn't the right material and then um it almost came to a point where i had to change because of the pandemic and started looking somewhere else unfortunately in fact, actually it's your fault that i made the change <laughs> because you got me on your uh on your podcast last year when we reconnected yeah. Um, someone saw that and I'd mentioned I'd work, I was working with students. I'd done some work with students and I was actually working with students. Then they got to my website, saw that I had worked with students, contacted me, said, could you work with uh, my daughter? So I said, yes, because I had all the resources. Mm-hmm. And out of that has come my new focus because I was working one-on-one with someone who wanted it, needed it and worked it and benefited from it. And the joy to see that person, and and the benefits uh it was like this is this is this i found i've refound it which is what i was doing when i left the navy 20 years ago and i sort of got sidetracked because of necessity but actually i don't know whether i needed to go on that detour um i'm better for the detour and i don't know whether maybe i should have done this 20 years ago and followed it through um but here i am now having been having been forced to make a change that i'm now choosing to
1: Okay. Yeah, look, you've, you're creating a little bit of cognitive dissonance in me, Mike, because the whole, my premise around Freedom Friday was making a choice. Um, you know, having to work on Friday because I felt I needed to, choosing not to or choosing to or choosing to, you know, walk on the beach, play golf, do nothing, read whatever it was. And over the last two or three weeks, the people that I've spoken to, it's almost turned it on its head in that choosing to is really hard it's really difficult but having to is easier
2: well it's choosing hard um i don't think choosing is hard because you now can make a choice about whether you suddenly start taking up the guitar or not you can make it it's a very easy choice the hard part is the follow-through that's okay. the hard part.
1: Okay, and if there's, um, a have because to, if there's a have to in place for the follow through, the follow through becomes easier.
2: The, well, it's almost like the follow through is the only thing you can do. Right. So yeah. that's where the have to comes in. And, and so I don't necessarily think you need a life shock to- um, To make a choice. I don't necessarily right. think you need a life shock to make the change, okay. Mm. I think if you, so I made the changes not out of courage, I made the changes out of fear. Yep. That's the difference. I think what you're talking about with the changes you're making is that it's having people make the change out of courage. And I think that's a harder decision. I think someone who sits there in a comfortable, relatively comfortable situation and says, you know what? I'm going to learn to play double bass and become a jazz musician. But you're 60. Oh, no, I'm going to do that. Right. That is a choice of courage. And I have more admiration for people like that who have taken life by the horns. <laughs> Let's keep it family friendly. Taken life by the horns, wrestle it down and says, Life, you're gonna give me what I want. I don't care what you throw at me, I'm taking it. Rather than someone like me, who rather cowardly has been sort of hiding in the background until someone kicks him at the backside and says, Right, you better get out there. And life did that for me. And I'm, I'm happy that it did. I'm better for it because it was. But there's a part of me thinking, um, I should have done that earlier. I should have done that earlier. And there's a pain of regret because looking back, I had control to take, I had the, the, the option to take control of my life, but chose not to out of fear. And I think someone listening to this who says, right, I, there's some changes I want to make, I would say to you, go and do it go and do it because I will respect you. Not that my respect, not that that you need my respect, but I will respect you for making that choice when you don't have to, to create something better. That to me is courage.
1: That's a really interesting distinction, Mike. I hadn't considered uh, even the difference between making a choice out of fear versus making a choice out of courage. And, serendipitously, the, my last guest was talking about in, in making the change and, and interesting she was forced to make the change through neither fear nor courage. She had no choice. But in making that change, what she sought was um, something she could count on, something she could rely on if it all went wrong. And she had that in terms of some relationships with family. And so if, if we can make a choice out of courage, what else do you think needs to be in place for us to do that?
2: Well, I think um, having something that you can rely on as, as your comfort blanket, as your security, uh, however you like to um, use that, I think is really useful. Um and I, I'm, I'm just thinking about this now, and I'm not talking about this from experience, but I would say that the more you can create that security blanket as being internal to you, the more likely you are to see it through. Because if you put it on the support network that you've got, people can walk away. Yeah. People can leave you. People can let you down. If you put it on the, the fact you live in a nice house, you can lose that house. If you put the fact that you've got a little bit of money in the bank, that can be taken away from you very, very quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, for, so the more you can create a security within yourself, a certainty, a commitment, a dedication, I think that is, that's where your strength comes from. And I think one of the things that I've discovered in myself is I have resources I didn't know I had because I've got to the point where I, I thought I'd come to the end of them. Mm-hmm. And then found another level I didn't know was there. I mean, that's quite a painful experience. I don't, I don't like going there, but I'd rather, I'd rather be able to do things. I'd rather be able to do things from where I am now. I don't really want to go through the pain. But it's but the, the resources that we've got. I mean, if you look at um, what the human race is capable athletically. Um, I mean, I, I read a lot about the special forces, who I have complete admiration for, having seen uh, a very brief contact with them in my own in my own uh, career. And when you read the accounts of how they go through their training in order to be able to tap into deeper and deeper, and deeper levels of reserves, which we all have, we just don't all have the courage or the discipline or the guts to go there, whereas they do.
0: Mm-hmm. And that's
2: why they are elite forces. And if you look at anyone who is operating at an elite level, whatever it is, they have broken through their own version of that. And so I think that's key. But coming back to your original question about what needs to be in place, if you're making the if you're making the change by choice, then I would say is you make small, tiny changes, Mm. small and daily changes and build up and build up and build up and build up. And what you see is a a gradual change. So a a personal example from recent. So last year with the pandemic, I got into uh, uh, doing yoga every day and I was doing press-ups as well. And uh, I got to a point where I was doing 160 press-ups a day. I started off not being able to do any more than 10. Now, that's not 160 all in one go, but doing it sort of in bouts of 30 and 40. I got to a point where I I think most press-ups I did was like 55, 60 at one point from not being able to do 10. Mm. Now, it's a very small, uh, trivial example, but I built up over time, starting off with doing one and two, and then doing three and four, and then might be do that for three or four days, and then slowly building up, and then building up, and building up. And all of a sudden, I'm there pushing these things out, completely different where I was three, four, five months before.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Same with, I have a cold shower routine that I'm inspired by Wim Hof. Yeah. First time I went under there, I thought, there's no way you get me under a cold shower. No way. Then I realised the benefits. Then I saw how it could be done. And I started off with my big toe, then my foot, and then my uh, my shin, and then my calf, and then my knee, and then and, and slowly build it up. And I built up, and I adjusted to the change. The thing about the human the human being is that um, it's I think it's called homeostasis, which is just uh, the, the the level playing field. So your 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 core body temperature is fixed at whatever temperature that is. Um, if you're cold, you start to shiver to warm up. Okay. If you're hot, you start to sweat to cool down. That temperature stays the same. And when you're, this is why doctors, when they check your temperature, if it's not, if it's different from the the the, the, the core temperature, they know there's something going on. That's that's why they check it. So we like to keep things the same. Now, if you try and make a massive change. So all of a sudden, you, you haven't been exercising for, for years. Right, I'm going to go to the gym. I'm going to go to the gym in the morning. I'm going to go to the gym in the afternoon. I'm going to go for a long walk. I'm going to do press-ups in the evening. You might sustain that for about a day, two days. Then it comes too much. But if you say, right, I'm just going to go for a walk for 10 minutes today. So what i am going to do? Mm. It might even be, I'm just going to put my trainers on and walk to the gate. Then tomorrow, you go through the gate and go to the next, next door's gate and the day after, and the day after. And slowly, in if you do that every day for six months, you could be walking 20,000 steps every single day. It's the same with anything else. Mm. Just make little changes, little changes. I've just completed a, um, the first draft of my book. Yay! I Yeah. <laughs> Uh, and I wrote, uh, I was hoping to write a chapter a day, but then I realized actually I can't do justice to a chapter. So I just did a couple of hours every day. And sometimes I might only write five, six, 700 words, but they were good quality. And then over the space of, um, six, eight weeks, I've got the book written. Cool.
1: Can I pick up on that? Because one of the groups that I've been working with in making a shift it's partly down to how they see themselves. And so in writing a book, in doing two hours a day, did you have to see yourself as a writer first? Or did you do the two hours a day and you became a writer?
2: Uh, it's a really good question. I think it's the, the latter one first, is that you sit down, you start writing. And right. you write one sentence, you're a writer now.
1: Hmm
2: you are a writer, you are an author. May not be a published author yet, but you're an author, you've written something. And I think for me, probably the, my biggest thing that's held me back, uh, and I'm, I'm big now into the growth and fixed mindset, is, is the realization that I had a fixed mindset for many, many years. Even though I was in the people development business, even though I have all the books on my shelves are about getting better and being better and learning, I realized I had a fixed mindset. And where it manifested is that I sort of had an expectation that I should be able to do something easily and do it well straight away. Mm. And if I couldn't, then I'd go and find something else I could do easy and well straight away. Yeah. So I've got this whole list of things I've tried where I've done, got to a, a, an easy level. But then as soon as it gets tough, I, I, I and I didn't necessarily do it consciously. I sort of, okay, right, well, I'm not making progress here. Let me go and make progress somewhere else. I'll try it. I think that was my mindset. But as I, as I reflect back now, I had a fixed mindset. And writing the book has been difficult. There were times when there were chapters that I just couldn't get out, and it just wouldn't work. And so I, I initially I thought, well, I'll just leave it. But then one day I thought, no. I cleared a day. I think it was a Saturday or a Sunday. I got up, did all my morning normal morning routine, sat down with my laptop, and and the draft I'd already created so far says, right, you're going to write this chapter, and you're not getting up until you've done it. And I had to force myself, and I think. I look back on my past and I've never really forced myself enough Mm -hmm. because I reflect on what could have been with where I I know what I'm capable of and how much feel I could have taken it. And my life could have been so much different. Had I realized that I've got to go through this feeling of discomfort of not making not uh, of it being tough and being hard. Because through that, on the other side of that pain, actually stuff can come out. And that particular chapter I did when I ended up finishing it, it it's like I pushed through, pushed through, and all of a sudden it's like I broke through. You know, when you're in a plane and you and you take off and you go through the cloud, all of a sudden there's this bright sunlight the other side. It felt like that, and all of a sudden it just flowed because I had to push through that resistance. I don't know whether that resistance was because I just didn't know what to write. Whether that resistance was part of me going, we're not going to let you write because otherwise you might fail. Mm. I don't know. But I pushed Uh, through that bugger anyway.
1: uh, uh, And I'm I'm coming back to the original premise that I started this whole conversation with, uh, you know, moving from I have to to I choose to. And uh, what I'm hearing, again, is in some way, shape or form, you were able to force yourself to convince yourself, I have to do this today. I have to. I'm not choosing to. I have to finish this chapter today. And that's what got you through.
2: I'm just going to add a, a subtle twist on that. I chose to do it, but having chose, chosen to do it, I had to follow through.
1: Yeah, that is a great distinction, actually. So you've still got the think, choice in the initiation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah. The have to is what creates the momentum and the follow-up.
2: I think we all would like to, we all can make easy choices about making some difference, about making some improvements. We can all make those choices. Yeah. I mean, New Year's resolutions are the the prime example of that. Yeah. The have to is I'm going to have to make myself do it. And, and breaking through that discomfort, whether it's the pain of, of, of the physical stuff, you're going to be push, pulling weight, pushing weights or running uh, and, and tiring yourself out, or whether that's the, the discomfort of trying to do something when you're tired. That's where the have to comes into, because you've made the choice. So before you might have had to be in a situation. You make the choice to change that situation. Now you have to follow through on it.
1: Mm. Yeah, I've just written down here, Mike, I, I choose to start, I have to follow through. Yeah. Uh, can you offer the listeners any counsel then? if they, ch- So the choosing seems to be a, a choice, a relatively easy thing, I can choose to learn the guitar, I can choose to finish the chapter. As you said, the, the finishing is the harder part. Any tips or tools to convince yourself you have to follow through once you've chosen?
2: Well, I think there is um, the public declaration, I'm going to do this, uh, if you fail then, and tell it to someone who you know is going to give yourself a hard time. Right. Um, I know uh, Tim Ferriss, um, who's the author of a number of great books, 4 work Workweek, one, uh, Tribe of Mentors, um, being another, he's, he does this thing where he will, um, I, I can't remember the name of the website, a website where you can commit funds or, to a particular cause, and give someone else control of that and you say to them if i don't then you press the button that goes that cause and you choose a cause that is the antithesis of anything you might believe (laughs) so if you're so let's say in america if you're a republican you might give it to the democratic national congress if you're a democrat you might give it to the gop okay it's it's that bad and so you've got that driver so that that's one one way of doing so so that accountability uh, is is one way. Um, the other way, uh, I suppose, is is choose to take baby steps, and because then you don't have to do it. There's a paradox here. Mm. So um, I can choose to do one press up now. I'm up to I'm back up to twenty press ups now, but I, I chose to do one press up, and then the following, that's I can do that. Yeah, I'm here now. Now let me just push it a little bit. And you can nudge yourself along, just like like I did with the book. Um, Mm. My online program, for example, 150 videos, I did those for like one video a day uh, and sorted that out and just... Mm. uh, And when I first thought, I've got a huge thing, I've got a huge program. But uh, in hindsight, it was quite easy because I just chipped away at it. And Mm. I think having the expectation of, uh, I want it, I want it now, things got changed now because of the society we live in, the instant gratification, uh, the the short-term attention span, um, there's a great book by Cal Newport called Deep Work where he talks about if you want to create something of value, you've really got to focus on it. And I think perhaps the uh, one thing that uh, just come to mind now is where I've made my most significant changes is where I've chosen to uh, one thing and chosen to ignore everything else. So this year, uh, as you know, I've committed to getting my... Uh, my Unfair Student Advantage up and running. So that's the online programme, that's the book that supports it, the support mechanism for that, and the marketing for that. Just the one thing. And I've been focused just on that. Other opportunities have come, there's other things I could have, well, let me just try and develop this, and we'll try and develop that in parallel. And I thought, no, I'm going to focus on one thing. And there's something quite interesting when that happened, is that once you're committed... And again, I'll, I'll quote Tony Robbins. He talked about decision. Uh, the, the the Latin root of the term, uh, uh, I think it's desir. Um, yeah. I maybe get that wrong, but it, it's, it's to cut off yeah. all other possibilities. Yeah. And so having made that commitment, I have made much more um, progress with it because I've been focused on that. And it's created a... It's, it's, it's like coalesce all the, all the miscellaneous identities and beliefs I had of myself into one. and I've become more powerful in the work I'm doing because I've committed to this one thing because I've chosen to ignore everything else and chosen to focus on this. I have to get this done because I've, I'm committed now, I'm committed. And it's almost like um, do or die. Yeah. And then I think this comes back to making this choice is that sometimes, it has to be that, because we can all say, well, I'm going to do this, I'm going to start that, I'm going to go along to this. But when you make it, right, this is it, it's this or bust,
1: mm.
2: fully committed.
1: That's uh, That resonates with, well, almost the antithesis of how I operate sometimes. I can be a little bit of a butterfly with books and ideas and concepts and you know, always kind of cantering over the top with lots and lots of things going on. Maybe my final question for you is, If that's the case, how would you counsel me to just do one thing when I'm so interested in everything else, I can add so much value, so I think, to everything else? How how would you counsel me to go, Pete, just one thing?
2: Well, first of all, I I need to explain to you what I think is going on. and There's a little bit of neuroscience here. So dopamine is the most addictive drug on the planet, and dopamine is the drug of reward. It's also the drug of anticipation. And so and, I, found, and I, I, I can see this in myself once I discovered this. So what happens is that when you read a book that's got some great stuff in, you feel good about the expectation of what would happen if you applied that. And so that becomes addictive, just like checking your smartphone is addictive with dopamine, just like all the other things about um, drugs and, or, or, or gambling or sex or food. There's an element of dopamine in that. Yeah. So when you understand that what you've got is an addiction to dopamine because the anticipation of good stuff that you could do, and that all you are is you're a junkie for dopamine. Okay, that might put a little bit of, of a different perspective on what you're actually doing. Yeah. The only thing I can say I'm a junkie is, for
1: dopamine. <laughs>
2: <laughs> the only thing I can say is is that. Um, the main thing is keep the main thing the main thing. That's the main thing. That's a very famous Stephen quote, uh, Covey quote. Making that choice, the one thing, which is a great book by Gary Keller and Joe Papasan, Jay Papasan, mm-hmm. this is what it's all talking about, is pick the one thing. Apply deep work. That's what Cal Newport's book was all about. And focus on that and just get that done. Now, that will hurt because you've got to suffer... The, the, the noise and the interference from all the things that you've got to put to one side, that might be friends, you may, be, you may have gone out for a drink with more often than you should have done. It might be uh, other things that need to get done because they're, they're nagging there. You've got to deal with that. But when you get focused and get something done and make that progress, you get a momentum you get a satisfaction, you feel a sense of purpose, you feel a sense of mission, you start seeing progress and you start feeling good about that, and it just rolls and it rolls and it rolls. And then it's very easy to say, no, I'm not going to do that because the world isn't perfect. The only way you're going to create something big is is focus on it, and that's going to be at the cost of other stuff, and it's being being able to um, deal with that.
1: That's going to be the perfect way to finish, Mike, because that then comes back to the... What strikes me is um, I could choose to start something often, mm-hmm. but it's this having to follow through on one thing that seems to make some, in the changes that you've been talking about, some big, big shifts. Um, Mike, I, I normally finish with kind of a few quick fire questions. Uh, if you would sure. mind partaking in this, um, we'll course. just see what Absolutely. comes out of you comes out of your mouth here. Um, What's your favorite English word?
2: Oh. If we were playing word associated, the word that came to my mind was crucible. I've no idea why.
1: (laughs) Okay. All right. What's your least favorite English word?
2: Um, Ignorance.
1: Okay. What's a real- And I think
2: that's more more of the the concept rather than the word itself,
1: Okay, cool. What's a rule you live your life by?
2: Oh, if it is to be, it's up to me.
1: Okay, what's a rule that you like to break? You
2: shouldn't do that.
1: (laughs) And then what's a book that's changed your life?
2: Um... I have to go back to the first book that I ever, first personal development book I ever read, which was The Magic of Thinking Big by David Schwartz. Um, It opened my eyes to the fact that I have control over more than I think, that I'm responsible for my successes. And the, the one thing I can remember from the book was instead of sitting at the back, to start sitting at the front and be closer to
1: the action. That's a great point. way to finish because what you've described and what you're doing now with your focus seems to me very much like you've come from the back of the class and you're sitting at the front.
2: Thank you. Really, I've really enjoyed pl- this conversation.
1: It's been a pleasure chatting to you, Mike. Thank you for those insights. Thank you for sharing some of your historic lessons and some of your current lessons. I'm sure those that listen will get many, many insights from it. Thanks, Mike.
2: Thank you. My pleasure.